So how many of us are familiar with spring cleaning? None of us are strangers to cleaning out the closet or the garage or the attic as we get rid of stuff that clutter our space and clutter our lives. I see that some of you are probably dreading the thought of doing spring cleaning this year because you have so much clutter like me. Now Joshua 7 speaks of the kind of spring cleaning that the church needs to do from time to time. So we're calling it this morning, Cleaning Up the Camp. Reverend Tom Owen said this, If we are going to be the church that we need to be, we need to clean house. I don't mean just cleaning things on the surface. I don't mean just cleaning up the things that are showing. I mean we need to clean up all the mess and all the dirt, even that, that stuff that's hidden from plain sight. Cleaning. Now, rather than reading the text as we would normally do um, initially, uh, we will read it as we go along. I want to make my first point, though, that breaking faith is a serious matter. Breaking faith is a serious matter. Verse 1 of Joshua 7 reads this way, and it will be on the screen behind me, as will all of the verses. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Now, from the very first word in our text, in that particular verse, Joshua wants us to know that something has gone wrong with God's people. With the word, but, he sets up a significant contrast, as the word, but, always does. The contrast is between what God had commanded, and what his people ended up doing. There's a huge contrast there. And here's how Joshua describes this contrast between what God had commanded and what his people ended up doing. He describes it this way, they broke faith. Breaking faith is the idea of violating some covenant, some vow that you made, some agreement that you ended up with. You broke it, like maybe breaking a marriage vow. It is the opposite of being devoted, a word that is used 29 times in the Old Testament, eight of them in this very chapter, devoted. So breaking faith is the opposite of being devoted. The very idea of being God's people assumes your devotion to God. It assumes a separation from everything, every affection, every desire that is either not of God or to God or for God. And you devote your lives in living in obedience to God. And so before Joshua tells us 
what happened, he will tell us why it happened. Because you see, at this point in our text, Joshua doesn't know what happened. He will know a little bit later on, but he tells us why it happened. Sometimes, even as church leaders, we might be clueless about the spiritual blunders in which the people of God that we lead sometimes find themselves. That's what's happening here to Joshua as the leader of Israel. He doesn't really know that within his camp, there is somebody who has committed an egregious thing against God. The text says that the people of Israel, the people God called to be his people, the people that he had made a covenant with, those people, they broke faith with him. Now what does Joshua mean by the devoted things? He means the gold, the silver, the iron, and the bronze that they took possession of when they destroyed the walls of Jericho and went in and possessed Jericho. These things, these precious metal metals were to be devoted to God for his service in the tabernacle. Everything else in Jericho, aside from these four metals, everything else was to be devoted to God for destruction. But one man, one man broke faith. He took some of the devoted things. That man would later admit that he, that before he took it, he coveted it. And before he coveted it, he saw it. So he saw, he coveted, and then he took. And sin always follows this trajectory. You see, you desire, and then you take. And so to God, one man breaking faith was the same as the entire nation breaking faith. One man's sin was the same as all of Israel's sin, at least to God. Verse 2 tells us that this sin by one man, which God saw as the sin of the whole camp, elicited this response from God. And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. What does that, what does that mean? Let's just say that you never want to be the one that God's anger burns against. You never want, we don't even need to describe what it is. You just don't need to be one that God's anger burns against. Nothing makes God's anger burn more than when a person willfully crosses a known boundary and does exactly what he was commanded not to do. I'm told that to keep people from trespassing on his ranch, this man in West Texas who owned a ranch, he, he posted this no trespassing sign just outside the gate. And this is what was on the sign. He says, stop. I know that you're thinking about crossing this gate. What you should know is that if the coyotes, cactus, mosquitoes, heat, dust, or rattlers don't get you, I will. Breaking faith is a serious matter. Here's our second point. Breaking faith leads 
to presumption, which sets us up for defeat. Verses 2 down to verse, verse 2 down to verse 5. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai, and they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about three thousand men went up from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of, the men of Ai killed about thirty-six of their men, and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim, and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Now what is presumption? It is pursuing a course of action with an attitude of superiority. It's a kind of pride or arrogance kind of a thing. What is their presumption? Let's look at verse 3 again. They returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. The presumption here is that it is their strength, their toil, that caused Jericho to fall in the first place. And it is their strength and their toil that would cause Ai to fall in this case. So they are presuming upon their strength, their power. Since we are so many and they are so few, we don't all have to go up there because we can easily defeat them. And so let's just send a couple of thousand people up. We don't, we don't really need God's help. We've got this is what they're saying. But verses 4 and 5 tell us that not only were they made to flee before their enemies, they suffered an embarrassing defeat at the hands of a nation that was way smaller than they were. 36 of their men were killed because they presumed upon their own strength. Now God told a man called Zerubbabel, he told him this one time in Zechariah chapter 4 and verse 6, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And so we will experience spiritual defeat every time that we lean on our own efforts as opposed to leaning on God's strength. Now here's what Charles Spurgeon says about leaning up on your own dependence or depending on your own strength. In speaking about our dependence on the Holy Spirit, Charles Spurgeon said this, without the Spirit of God, we can do nothing. We are as ships without the wind, branches without sap, and like coals without fire, we are useless. God's people need to depend upon the Holy Spirit. That is why we pray so often in church, because it never gets accomplished without us depending on the Holy Spirit. Here's our third point. We must respond to people who break faith by emulating the example of Israel's leaders. 
here's where I'm going to have you join me in reading verses 6 down to verse 9. Verse 6 to 9. Let's read together. It should be on the screen behind you. Together. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening. He and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? Example set is example followed. We've heard that time and time again. Look at Joshua's response here. He tore his clothes. He fell on his face before God. He stays there for hours. He gathered all the elders, and together they put dust on their heads. Now, all of these are outward signs of repentance, grief before God, repentance. Now, wouldn't it be something if all of the leaders of our church expressed solidarity of spirit and humility and repentance before God on behalf of his people? It doesn't necessarily have to mean that we were guilty. It doesn't mean that we necessarily committed any offense. It just means that we become intercessors, that we stand in the gap between God and his people, and we shoulder responsibility, and we say, God, have mercy on your church. Wouldn't it be something if we all, as leaders, did that? That's what Joshua does here. There's a humility, there's a brokenness, there's a solidarity, there's a crying upon God for mercy because of the condition of God's people. What if we all assumed that guilt, even if we may be innocent, but stand in the gap and say, God, have mercy. Now, there's only one thing wrong with Joshua's prayer of repentance. He moves from repenting to blaming God, something that we often do as well. So he blames God for the predicament that Israel uh, Judah now finds themselves in. And he says, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all? To give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. What would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan? In other words, God, it is your fault. You're the one who made this happen to us. But God lays the blame right back on Israel. See, when we humble ourselves before God, he shows us where the blame really belongs. And it is never with God. It is often with us. Here's point number four. There are times when the correct response is to get up from prayer and act. Prayer sometimes is used as an excuse for action. Sometimes, according to this text, the Appropriate and correct response is to get up from prayer and act. The Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? 
Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted to destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up. Consecrate the people and say, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, there are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes. And the tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clans. And the clan that the Lord takes shall come near by households. And the household that the Lord takes shall come near man by man. And he who is taken with the devoted thing shall be burnt with fire. He and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord, and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. Stop praying, Joshua, God says. Get up off your knees. It is not I who have sinned or broken faith with Israel. It is Israel who has broken faith with me. And so prayer, as good as prayer is and as necessary as it is, prayer must never be a substitute for action. When God clearly has shown us what to do, continuing to pray is disobedience. You realize that? If God has shown you clearly a course of action that you must take, but you keep praying, thinking, or praying for God to show you when he already has, then that is disobedience. We must get up and act. And so to reinforce how offensive this thing is that Achan has done, God is going to pack six references to it within a single verse. Here are they. Israel has sinned, number one. Two, they have transgressed my covenant. Three, they have taken some of the devoted things. Four, they have stolen. Five, they have lied. Six, they have put them among their own belongings. What Achan has done, God says, is an outrageous thing. Meaning it is an act that is unbecoming of God's holy people. And so when scripture uses the term outrageous thing, it often refers to some kind of sexual perversion that exists among God's people. Just to give you a few examples. In Genesis chapter 39 and verse 10, um, yes, Genesis 39 and verse 10, Joseph, remember him? Jacob's son, who was sold into slavery in Egypt, he called Potiphar's invitation to sleep with her. He refers to it as an outrageous thing. How can I do such great wickedness? Something so outrageous, he says, and sin against God. In Deuteronomy chapter 22 and verse 10, God labeled promiscuity as an outrageous thing that must never occur among God's people. 
in Judges chapter 20 and verse 6. That passage describes the sexual assault of a young woman by a gang of men that resulted in her death. Scripture refers to it as an outrageous thing. It ought never to have happened among God's people. 2 Samuel chapter 13 and verse 12 describes Ammon force Amnon forcing himself on his sister as an outrageous thing that should never happen among God's people. And then finally, Jeremiah 29 and verse 3, God, God witnessed men of Israel committing adultery with their neighbor's wives, and he described it as an outrageous thing that was unbecoming of his people. And so what are the consequences of these people breaking faith? Here is God's answer. These are the consequences, he says. Because you have broken faith, that is why you can't stand before your enemies. You can't fight them. You don't have the strength within you to stand against them because of what you've done. Secondly, that is why you turn your backs and run from them when you ought to be conquering them. Because there's no strength in you, you have to be running, turning your backs on them. Thirdly, here is the shocking thing. Here is the thing that I pray would never happen at Brown's Chapel. God says this, I will not be among you anymore unless you destroy the devoted things. That is a strong statement. That is why we need to be praying that God constantly cleans house so that his presence is not removed from us because of known sins. So here's what God says you must do when you get up from praying. When he shows you what you, you need to do and you get up from praying, verse 13 says, this is what you must do. This is what he's telling Joshua to do. Consecrate the people. We looked at that word consecrate um, a couple of weeks ago. Consecrate the people. And say, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. In other words, set yourself apart from anything that is offensive. Ask God to remove anything from your life that is offensive. Purify yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord, there are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. Consecrate yourselves. So here's where I ask, each of you this morning, look inside yourself and say to yourself, I'm going to ask you to go ahead and say, I need to take care of my stuff. Can you say that? I need to take care of my stuff. Turn to the person on your left and say to them, you need to take care of your stuff. And then turn to the person on your right and say, we all need to take care of our stuff. Amen. Verse 5. We honor God when we identify and deal with the sin in our camp. You're going to help me read verses 16 through 21. As soon as it's behind me on the screen, would you say amen? All right, can we all read together? So Joshua rose early in the morning 
and brought Israel near tribe by tribe, and the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought near the clans of Judah, and the clan of the Zerahites was taken. And he brought near the clan of the Zerahites man by man, and Zabdi was taken. And he brought near his household man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel, and give him praise. And tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from China, and two hundred shekels of silver, and a bar of gold weighing fifty shekels, then I coveted them and took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. Now, if this passage teaches us one thing, it is this. There are some things that you must do early. There are some things that you must do early. Some things can be left for another day. But there are some things that have to be done early. And this is one of those things that must be done early and not later. Dealing with issues of a breach of faith. They have to be dealt with early and not later. Now, as we notice here, the selection process that they enter into as a people to determine who it was that had uh, caused this breach of faith, this selection process is going to repeat the word taken several times. Now, it is interesting that that word taken is often used to refer to your enemies when they're captured. So there are several references of it throughout the book of Joshua. But this is what has happened, that Achan's sin has turned him now into a man that is being hunted so that he will be taken in the same way that people are taken when they are captured. Enemies of God are taken. And so even if God has to go through tribe by tribe, clan by clan, family by family, household by household, man by man, until he gets to the offender. God will do that. God will do that. So Achan must now be devoted to destruction. Joshua allows him in this passage the opportunity to come clean before God about what he has done. He says, my son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give him praise. In other words, tell God what you have done so that he may be glorified, that he may be proved right. Because God knows, Joshua is saying, who it is who has done this. And when you come clean and admit it, God is proven right and he is given glory. And so Achan now repents of his sins with these words, I have sinned. And these are words that God loves to hear. Not that he might gloat, but that he might show you mercy. The only thing wrong with, Nacon, with Achan's admission here, his repentant act here, is that it came a little bit too late for him. See, that's why repentance is one of those things that have, has to be done early 
has to be done early and not later. Early while there is still grace available, which we sang about so eloquently this morning. The grace of Jesus, the love of Jesus, the blood of Jesus that avails for all of our sins. Repentance has to be done early, not later. Here's our sixth point. When we break faith, we bring trouble on God's camp. Verse 22. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent, and behold, <coughs> excuse me, behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the people of Israel, and they laid them down before the Lord. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan the son of Zerah and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold and his sons and daughters and his oxen and donkeys and sheep and his tent and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, Why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burnt them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor. But the question that we must ask, ask ourselves is the question that Joshua asks Achan. Why did you bring trouble on us. In other words, how could you do such a thing, Achan? Do you have any idea what you've done? You've brought trouble not only on you, not only on your household, not only on your family, not only on your tribe, but on the entire nation of Israel. You've made 36 men lose their lives. You've caused us to lose an entire battle as we ran in embarrassment from an enemy that was even weaker than we were. You've caused your entire family, or you will cause your entire family, to lose their lives. You will bring about a permanent stain on the entire nation. Do you have any idea what your trouble, what trouble you have brought on us, Achan? Is what Joshua is asking. We seldom ask that question or those questions when we commit a breach of faith, do we? We sometimes only think about the pleasure that it brings us. We think only of what is in it for us, but we never think of the consequences to our children, to our marriage, to our household, to our church. Why did you bring trouble on us, Joshua asks. Now the only th good thing that came out of this mess, really, the only good thing is what verse 26 tells us. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. In other words, it, God was satisfied now that this had been dealt with. And so his anger against the people was taken away. Confrontation happens in verse 19, which led to confession 
in verse 20 and 21. Confession leads to confirmation, which led to extermination in the case of Achan and his family, which led to commemoration, them putting up stones so that they would remember what happened and that they would never in their lives again do what happened. Now notice that it was the people that were sinned against that were involved in stoning Achan. Now this seems very harsh to us in our culture because that's not, that's not something that we do. You don't stone somebody. That was permitted back there though for an entire community to do this because you see, since an entire community was doing it, it couldn't be pointed to any one individual who would have caused the death. And so that was permissible. And notice here that they buried Achan under a great, great heap of stones which would serve as a reminder to them of what had happened so that they would never again repeat it. It's a hard message. You realize that? It's a tough message. But the whole counsel of God needs to be preached. And it has to be preached with compassion as well. And I have to preach this message as if I'm preaching it to myself as well. Because I have to live this just as you have to live it. Here's the bottom line to our message this morning. <clears throat> we, we all at Brown's Chapel, we have the collective responsibility of keeping God's camp clean. That is the responsibility that all of us have. May God help us to fulfill this responsibility and to live it out. Here are three application points. Pray for God's forgiveness and not just his help. Now we have a tendency, <clears throat> we have a tendency to pray only when we need help. When we find ourselves in a crisis, thank you, when we find ourselves in a crisis or in some predicament, We turn to God for help. And that's appropriate, by the way, because God wants us to turn to him for help. And that's what the people of God, what they do in this particular um, sense. There is a crisis, and they turn to God for help. We are often guilty as well, just as they were, of blaming God for our crisis. Don't we? Don't we sometimes say, God, how could you allow this to happen? It is never God's fault. Never. You will never be able to justly accuse God of doing anything wrong because he never does. It nearly always is our fault. Very often it is the consequences of what we have done, the choices that we have made, or the wrong choices of somebody else against you, but it, it's never God's fault. And so when the fault is yours, the right prayer to pray is not, God help me, but God forgive me. Because if it's not God's fault and it is my fault, then my only uh, response when I go to God in prayer should be, first of all, God, I have sinned. Please. Forgive me. I wonder if there's anyone here this morning 
for whom that prayer will be appropriate. You don't have to do it publicly. You don't even have to stand to do it. I don't even have to call you forward to do it. I just want you to do it in the quiet of your heart. God, forgive me. And when you pray that prayer, and you pray it earnestly, God forgives. His grace is sufficient. There is no breach of faith that God cannot and will not forgive. That is the beauty of grace. That is the beauty of the God that we serve. And yet often we are so afraid of him. And all that he wants to do is to invite us in and to forgive. Let us pray. God, we do not want to underestimate the importance of this moment, this opportunity. This is your house. Your integrity is at stake. And God, you will always be proved right. It is in our place to throw ourselves upon the mercy of God and to say, please, if I have committed any breach of faith, would you forgive me? And God, I pray that somebody would pray that prayer this morning and experience the beauty of your forgiveness, the beauty of your grace. If you're here this morning and you have never given your life to Christ, this is the perfect opportunity to do that. As you recognize that you have violated every command that God has given, and yet he invites you back. And if you pray, Lord, forgive me, he does forgive. God, have mercy on one soul this morning who doesn't know you. That person who is here, who needs to make it right with you finally. May they do so in Jesus' name. Here's a second application point. Recognize that sin is, is not just personal, but it is also communal. And so chapter 7, <clears throat> chapter 7 begins with Israel breaking faith. Even though it was the sin of one man, God saw it as the sin of an entire community. And so the process of casting lots, which they did, I don't quite know how they did it. It, did it. it was kind of a mysterious thing. They had their way of, of um, determining, uh, with God's help, with this instrument called the Urim and the Thummim. You're probably uh, familiar with that. They had their way of determining these things. They called it casting lots. Uh, there are some people who still try to do it in modern modern day. They use a scissors, and I don't know how they do it. But but you know, every culture, I guess, has its own way of of determining things. And so uh, through that process, that process showed that it was not just Achan's sin. This wasn't just one one man personally uh, doing something wrong. It was also the community's failure. Because you have to ask yourself, if, if, Ahan be, if Achan belonged to a family, and if he belonged to a tribe, then what about accountability? Did nobody within his household, his family, his clan, his tribe, nobody held him accountable? So this was a community's failure. That's how God saw it. Now, Achan was responsible for his sin, but his sin affected his community. They had to deal with his sin. 
36 people lost their lives. An entire battle was lost because of someone's private sin. My sin will affect this church. Your sin will affect this church. And when that happens, we as a community, with God's help, we need to deal with it graciously, as God expects us to, not judgmentally. Because the Bible does say that if any man is caught in a fault, you who are spiritual, you must restore him. But you must do so gently, considering yourself. Because you also could end up in that. So we have, as a community, to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. To live in ways that honor God and please Him. Here's a final application point. Make it your constant prayer that God would move us to corporate repentance. I will not say much about this point other than to have you stand and read with me a prayer that Nehemiah, an Old Testament man of God, that he prayed this prayer on behalf of his people, he personally was not living in sin. Personally. But look at what he does in this passage as he takes it upon himself and comes before God as an intercessor for his people. And I want to challenge us this morning, all of us, that we need to be emulating this example as well. So would you stand with me, please? And just 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 some brief context that Nehemiah is in exile. He's serving king, the king of um, <clears throat> this foreign pagan country. And he hears the news that Jerusalem has been destroyed. And this is what he does. And so let's, let's read this together. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. <clears throat> and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you have commanded your servant Moses. We are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man.